In the wake of the recent shooting at Robb Elementary in Texas this week, we thought this would be a particularly relevant time to re-release our episode with Officer Tyler Bowling. School shootings are just a consistent reality. I think we recorded this relatively after another school shooting and they just keep happening. This episode is about how young people can protect themselves and other ideas that circulate around school shootings. I hope it'll bring you some comfort or at least give you some more helpful information. Here we go. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this episode are that of the guest and host and do not necessarily reflect the values of sponsors or other associated organizations. Welcome to the Parental Compass, presented by Family Education and Support Services. I am your host, Bobby Williams. As always, if you like what you're hearing, please subscribe to us. Any platform you're listening to this on, Spotify, Amazon, whatever, you can probably subscribe. So please hit that subscribe button. I was about, I wanna say 11 or 12 when Columbine first happened. And since then, there has been over 280 school shootings across the country. It's a wild reality to have to think about, but a real one. So what are children being taught? How can they know to be safe? Well, here to speak with me about the issue is Officer Tyler Bowling. Tyler has been a detective and school resource officer in Tumwater, Washington since 2007. Before that, he was an officer out in Los Angeles. He's given a lot of thought to this issue. Let's check it out. How concerned should parents be about a school shooting? Is it like getting struck by lightning, a one in a million chance? Is it something that's on the rise? Like, what's your take on all this? Well, they still happen. They're not as common, I think, as, as people would think. Um, I would say over the you know the last 20 years, I, I think with news, there's a lot more information that people can get. And so a lot more of the information is out than how it used to be. So a lot of the things that most people would never hear about, we hear about nowadays, just the way the, the media is. Um, I still think it's a concern. I mean, it's obviously a concern for us to work at the police department, especially for me and my partner working the schools. So we, we spent a lot of time um, educating the staff on uh, different situations, how they would should react to those and how they can help the students with that. And we also um, work with the students about what they would do for lockdown drills. We work, we work with them and what we expect from them to happen in certain situations like that. So with parents, um, you know, everybody's different. I, I really believe our schools are, are very safe. They're safe as they can be. Um, we work hard to keep it that way. And so me as a parent, I have two. I have two kids that are in, in the school district here in Tumwater too, and and I don't have concerns about something bad like that happening. Yeah. So, what do you actually teach the students then? You talked about instructing them. Is it just don't get shot, or? Well, yeah, I mean that's part of it. But what we teach, you know, we teach for the staff, and we, we go down to the students too. Is a concept what we refer to as run, hide, fight. Mm -hmm. um, with, with that, it basically kind of spells out what it is in the title. 
if you were to have an intruder come into the school, the first thing we want to try to do for the students and staff is we want them to run. We want them to get out of harm's way, run as far as you can, because getting out of that situation is going to be the safest. So that's that's the first thing we, we try to tell them. Now, every situation is different. You might not have an opportunity to be able to do that. So in a situation where there might be a gunman in a, in a school and you can't run because there might be only one door or the hallway you need to get to is where they're coming from, then we tell them to hide. Um, we go over with the staff and the students. We go into the classrooms and we kind of look at the classrooms because every classroom is a little different. And we give uh, our opinion um, on what the safest place would be in that classroom if they were to have to hide. Um, depending on if they have, you know, some classrooms have interior rooms inside of a room. So if they can get in there, you know, that might be a better thing. Um, some may have windows. So, you know, we don't want them in front of the windows because somebody can see. So we kind of, we work with the staff and the students about that for them to pick the right places. So that, that's what they would do if they have to hide. Uh, we also stress is really important when you are hiding that you, you try to remain completely silent and you lock the doors. And the reason for that is statistics show that most school shooters or intruders into a building, they're there to try to cause as much damage as they can and quickly as they can. Uh, they're gonna be moving on and moving down that hallway uh, and won't spend a lot of time most likely trying to get into a locked room because they know the police are coming and they only have a certain amount of time to be able to carry out what they're trying to carry out. So th those are some of the things we tell them about the hide. Um, the last part of it is the fight. And that's basically, that's your last, your last ditch effort. That's, that's where you're fighting for your life. So wh whatever it takes for you to try to keep yourself uh, safe and alive is what you're going to do um, to that gunman or the person that's coming to harm you. Different ages of kids is going to be a different talk that you're going to have with them. Um, conversation I have with my high school kids. I mean, most of them are bigger than me. I got, you know, big football players in some of those classes. And so, you know, they, they would love the opportunity if somebody come in there and they just get a pound them, you know, and then we, we tell them that, you know, you do whatever you can to keep you safe. You know, you got your second graders and things like that. They're, they're really not able to do that type of thing. So they really have to listen to their teachers and do what's, what's instructed to them to keep them safe. Yeah. I try to bite them or something. Sure. Yeah. Whatever it takes. Mm-hmm. I got teachers that in classrooms, you know, they have baseball bats. They, you know, they, they prepare for these type of things too. And we do those drills. It's pretty interesting to see some of the, some of the things that they plan on doing when we come through that door. So I tell my officers, you know, if this ever real, make sure, make sure you knock on that door and announce yourself. Cause you come in, you may have a baseball bat swinging at you. So yeah, they're, wow. they're all aware. <clears throat> it's interesting to me. I was just thinking as you were talking about all that, that no school shootings happened until 1999, and now they're just something we constantly, you know, or at least ongoingly worry about. And it's just interesting seeing the state of the world like that. I remember when I was young, Columbine being the, you know, the huge thing that had everyone's attention. Do you think we've learned a lot about school shootings since then? I, I think, you know, uh, Columbine did teach a lot. It taught a lot with the, the police tactics and how we respond to a, to a call like that. Uh, back when Columbine happened, the, the common thing was to get the officers there. You lock down the area and you call for the SWAT team, which could take an hour to get there. And they showed how many lives were lost by not making entry into that school. So that, that's one of the main things we learned from, from Columbine. But I, I think with every incident that we've had since then, you learn a lot. You learn a lot about the, the tactics that the, uh, the shooter, the intruder is using compared to what we do to try to combat that. So yeah, it, it's, it's always a learning experience that we try to, we try to learn and get better from. And you know, that's, that's one of the things that you try to get from each of those situations is what you would do differently to make the outcome better for everybody involved. I remember another part of the story around then was these kids felt like they were the victims of bullying. 
And since then, the internet has evolved so much to where maybe bullying used to be something that happened till 3 p.m. and you could just go home or whatever. But now with social media, it's like you could be bullied 24-7 and it just could be all-consuming. What can parents do about bullying if they feel like their kid is bullying someone or they're the victim of bullying? Because it seems just like a train you can't stop in a way. Some of it, unfortunately, is. Um, you know, I hate to say it's part of growing up, but it's it's a it's a big thing in society now that you know everybody handles it differently. And yeah. what you're saying is exactly how you know I kind of felt. And I've talked about before is when I was a kid. Um, if I was being bullied or whatnot, yeah, I, I can go home on a Friday afternoon and not have to deal with it till Monday. But with social media, they can't get away from it. And unfortunately, a lot of people they have to know if they know something's being talked about with them or there's a rumor or something that they can't help but stay away from the social media because they want to know what everybody's saying, which just compounds yeah. that problem more and more. Um, we in the schools, we really stress for the kids to, uh, you know, another model we have, see something, say something, which it covers everything. You see somebody with a weapon at school, you see somebody with drugs at school, you know, somebody's being bullied. We need somebody to, to see it and then tell somebody, an adult about it, so we can try to get to the root of it and try to make it, you know, solve it. Um, through our schools here in Tumwater, we even have anonymous tip lines to where students can call up and they can talk about those type of things where it can be investigated. Um, I encourage a lot of the kids and it's different again, going through the different ages. And I try to put myself back being that seventh grade student. And if I would have the courage to be able to do a lot of the things that I would like the students to do. And one of them really centers around bullying is I have a lot of conversations with kids. If give you a situation where you have, you have one student, you got three or four that are there saying things and really bullying that one kid. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's just the one kid and the other one that are really in it. But the other ones that are standing around watching it from the outside looking in, it looks like they're there agreeing with everything that's happening. And so we have a lot of those talks about uh, guilt by association. If you stand there while somebody else is bullying another kid, you look like you're an active participant in it. So I really challenge a lot of the students that if you see something like that, say something. Tell that other kid, knock it off. There's no reason why you need to be doing that. And, and it's, it's really difficult to try to get students to do that. And, you know, and I think back when I was in seventh grade, I don't know if I would be able to say that because popularity and embarrassment is a huge thing when it comes to youth in school, especially in the middle school situation. And, you know, it, it's hard to, to say something, have that voice to speak out against what's wrong, even if you do know it's wrong. So we, we try to teach that and have lots of conversations with the students, especially around the, the bullying situations. Yeah. Well, it, it would definitely be hard. Do you get a lot of kids to take you up on the uh, tip line? It seems like they could take it as like the snitch line or. Something. Yeah, you know, I mean, we do. We get some, we get some, um, quite a few calls. I mean, not, you know, it, it's not like um, a lot of emergency things that end up coming with it. But, you know, that's not, that's not really the whole point behind it was, you know, the thing was set up for if somebody has something they need to notify about, whatever it is. Um, they have an opportunity to be able to do that. So yeah, we, we do have it and it comes through an email. So me yeah. and my partner, we end up getting emails about it. It goes through the principals, um, the school, the school security and us. So we can, we can get it. We can look at it, find out who it needs to go to, what the next steps are. So it does help out. Do you have any like examples without, you know, obviously disclosing anyone of a time that line helped or really made a difference? Yeah, we've had um, people have called in and said, you know, they heard, so-and-so was talking about bringing a gun to school 
Hmm. Um, you know, and so we're able to get that. And the good thing about that is, and I remember one time in particular, we got a tip like that. Well, school wasn't in. And so at that point, if we get it, you know, the night before that something's going to happen, that gives us opportunity to work with either the patrol officers or us, you know, go out and contact that person, try to find out what's going to happen. And, and then, you know, in this situation, they're emergency expelled from school, which means they're, they're removed from school until an investigation can be done to find out if they're going to be safe to be back at school. And so the good thing about that is, is that when you have one person calling that tip line, you know, there's, there's numerous people that know about it. Just none of them either had the courage or thought about calling in on that tip line and letting somebody know. So us being able to remove that person from school, everybody there at school now knows, you know, hey, this is a safe, we don't have to worry about that, you know, that kid being here. And so, you know, I think it really helps with that. Yeah. How do you evaluate or decide if a kid's safe to come back to school? We have a process where we do, a, it's a threat assessment where we work with the school district. Um, the school runs it. They're the ones that run the threat assessment. We're there as an advisor just to kind of give, um, I guess, the police perspective on what we think needs to happen. Um, maybe a generic situation would be if you have a kid who who thought about bringing a weapon to school or did bring a weapon to school, but, you know, had it in their backpack, showing some friends, you know, not a overt like they're going to do something is what more, mostly what we get. Um, we would do a threat assessment where we have to determine does the student going to be able to be safe when they come back? It's it contacting parents to find out what access they have to weapons. Are these weapons locked up? Um, is there any mental health concerns that we need to address? You know, do they need to maybe go see somebody, talk to somebody outside of the school before they do that? So there, there's lots of steps the school puts in, and, you know, to make sure because, you know, we have lots of conversations with kids who make mistakes and um, might bring a pocket knife to school or, you know, or drugs, you know, that, that type of thing where, um, you know, we always talk about there's, you know, 7,800 kids in this school that we're responsible for keeping safe. And so we have to make sure everybody's doing their role. And so that's why the, the threat assessment is something that we take pretty serious to make sure that they are safe to be in school with everybody else. Yeah, that makes me think of a lot of different things like you talked about parents having firearms at home and a, a lot of people have firearms. Do you have any advice for those parents with firearms and children? Yeah, you know, uh, uh, firearms, I mean, they're, they're, they, they could be a dangerous thing, but they're, they're legal, you know, yeah. they're, for, the, for the right people, they, they can have them, you know, in our state, if you're over 21, you can have a handgun on your hip and not cover it up and you can go wherever it, it's, it's legal to have. So, especially with kids in the home, um, you know, I feel a lot of kids, uh, or I shouldn't say a lot, but there, there's a, you know, there's a big portion of kids that are curious. And so having the opportunity, a gun that's not locked up, they may be want to go and see how it works you know, violent uh, video games and, and movies and things like that have a lot of weapons in them. So I think the curiosity goes up with some kids. So it's really important for parents, you know, to be safe gun owners and make sure those those are locked up in a way so uh, children don't have access to them. And, you know, the other side of that too, I think, um, you know, if you do have a, a son or daughter who's interested and curious about that, you know, maybe it wouldn't be a bad idea to take them out to a range, show them how, how these work safely and, you know, the the dangers of playing with them. So they, that curiosity maybe goes down a little bit because now they have knowledge about how they work. Yeah. Uh, the first time I shot a gun, I remember just being very struck by how much of a kick it has. You know, it doesn't feel like that in a video game or sure. something. It's just like the way that guns look and the reality of guns can be really different. Yeah. You know, the, the majority of the, the weapons we have at a school are not, and they're not real, but they look real. Mm -hmm. there's there's lots of companies that make these replica firearms that look exactly like the real thing. How, how much of a role do you think culture plays 
as far as influencing school shootings? Because I'm of two minds about this. On one hand, I feel like, well, there's video games and music and movies, but we all understand it's entertainment and let's give people some credit for being intelligent. And then mm -hmm. on the other side, I think, well, people can be impressionable and you combine that with mental health and maybe it's a bad thing. So I'm a little torn. What, what do you think about all that? You know, I, I basically think, you know, the exact same thing. It's kind of yeah. each individual is, it's different for them. Um, I can speak for myself growing up. I was always, I'm a huge rock music fan, have been probably since I was young, probably nine years old, you know, listening to a lot of stuff. And, you know, and we have had situations where people talk about they've been influenced by certain bands to do certain things. Well, that never happened for me. So I think, I think it's every person's a little different. You might have some people that have some mental health concerns and seeing these video games or these movies and having that fantasy of being able to act that out, that may be something that would really, you know, help them with that. Other people, um, you know, I have a 14-year-old son that plays some video games I'm not really crazy about, but he's old enough to play them now. But, um, you know, it, it doesn't affect him at all because he knows reality from non-reality. Yeah, it seems like it just comes down to the parents of how mature do you think your child is? And yeah, it, that. yeah, it really does. You know, the parents really need to be involved and be aware of uh, what, what their kids are into. Um, social media, video games, movies, music, you know, be a part of that and really, you know, try to figure out, you know, I've, I've learned a lot since I've been in the schools about things I never even heard of. Because, you know, a lot of these students, the younger ones, they, they got a whole other language that they use. And trying to figure out what they mean a lot of times is, is, is totally different from the adult world. So I think it's important as a parent to try to try to keep on top of that and at least know what's going on in, in your kid's life and his friends and who they're hanging out with. And So yeah. this is a little bit of a side issue, but what are you seeing as far as the drug climate in schools? Is it going up? Is it going down? I remember a few years ago, it seemed like pills were a bigger thing. What are you seeing just on your end of things? Well, for, for us in our schools, I've never had any um, any really, I'll call it hard drugs, like your methamphetamine and um, heroin and things like that. I, I do think that, you know, over the last few years, uh, marijuana has been legalized here in uh, Washington State. And so you know, it used to be when I was a kid, the, the marijuana, you know, if your parents had it, it's locked up in the bedroom or in the closet and you, you don't see it. And, and nowadays it's, it's on the kitchen counter where kids have more access to it. Um, it's my opinion, a lot of the marijuana stuff we have at school is usually come from the parents or the friends of parents that the, the, the students have been having access to. So I think with, with marijuana, it's definitely easier for people under the age of 21 to have access to it. Yeah. So pay attention to your weed parents. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here and for taking the time. Do you have any closing thoughts or ideas for the families out there you want to share? I'll just tell you that uh, being a school resource officer is probably the best position I've had in law enforcement. Um, I think it's really important. Um, I'll talk a little bit about our program because I guess I didn't speak about that. The, sure. the way that we, we run our school resource officer program is, is uh, our reason for being in school is not to try to see how many kids we can arrest. Um, be that way. We, we run off what's called a NASRO concept, which is the National Association of School Resource Officers. It's, it's a uh, organization that's in the United States. Our, our main focus is, is that we're just another caring adult in the building. Um, we go off a triad model where we're a counselor, educator, and law enforcement is usually the last part of that. So we, we try to work with the, uh, the students. Um, the reason why 
I think it's important too, is that they can see what police officers do. We're there to help. We're trying to assist with, you know, whatever we can. Um, I don't wear a uniform to school all the time. I, I participate in their spirit week. I got my own football Jersey at one of my schools, got my name on it. Um, I participate in the talent show, you know, whatever we can do with the students to see that we're real people, um, that not police aren't all robotic. We're not there just to try to arrest everybody. Um, and it's a really good position because we got to deal with, when I was on patrol, you go to a lot of radio calls where you may deal with a situation where, you know, say a student's uh, mom or dad get arrested for domestic violence and they, they go to jail and, you know, then you leave and you go to the next call and you never really know what happens from there. Have an officer in school, that's another resource for the student if they have questions about, hey, so, you know, my dad got arrested. What, you know, what happens from here, you know? Well, I think the more officers can approach from a perspective of empathy, compassion, and relationship building, you know, the better. So th thank you so much for being here today. All right, thank you very much. Hopefully there'll be a day someday when we don't have to think about this issue like we do now. Stay safe, everyone. This has been the Parental Compass presented by Family Education and Support Services. Bobby Williams, see you next week. Peace.